Tonight's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes 2, 18-26. God's word says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he tours beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. Lord God, we come to you uh, in vexation, in our toiling and our striving, uh, and wanting more. God, we've seen our work, the work of our hands, and how it can often at times be vanity. So God, we, we enter this time and we want to confess to you where we have fallen short in our work where we have seen the work of our hands um, not produce what it's meant to produce. That, God, because we have fallen short, we have sinned in the workplace. Because we have not displayed the excellencies of Jesus Christ as a disciple in the workplace, we have sinned. And God, you have called us out of that and drawn us to yourself by your grace. So God, would you help us to see what can be a productive time in our work? That we would see fruit in our work. God, that we would have a right perspective of how work is and still can be good. So that when we work hard and even toil and even strive, it, it isn't vanity. Because we can point to how it glorifies you, being sure that you are pleased with the work of our hands. So God, would you help us tonight to take a look at whatever job we have, whatever vocation we have, whatever career field we're striving for, and really assess, is it something that would please you? And if it is, how can we clean it up? How can we manage it, do it, 
Work it in a way that would please you to bring you glory and produce good in our lives. That we would benefit from what you have for us. So God, we enter this time asking that you would teach us tonight, that you would help reshape the way we think about our coworkers, our boss, uh, our workplace, whatever it is that needs to change. Lord God, your will be done in our workplace as you would have it. God, would you bless our time as we worship you in spirit and in truth, and as we learn from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2003, a show premiered on the Discovery Channel called Dirty Jobs. Do you remember Dirty Jobs? Ran for eight seasons. People couldn't get enough of it. It had a host by the name of Mike Rowe, and, uh, and he would, as the intro tells us, uh, he would explore the country looking for people who aren't afraid to get dirty. Hardworking men and women who earn an honest living doing the kinds of jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us. Now get ready to get dirty. That's how the show would start. Watching the show, one can see how work is hard enough with the conditions and challenges that it brings in and of itself in any given location or field of work. But what life experience teaches us, that we don't need the help from dirty jobs to know, is that hard work is only compounded. When you add messy people into the mix, every job, can be a dirty job when it is worked by fallen man. We evidence this with our own twisted perspective on different aspects of work. Labor, for instance. We either avoid it or we burn out. Right? That's a phrase we're starting to get more and more familiar with, aren't we? Abilities. We either tell ourselves, I can't do anything. Or we say, I can do anything and everything, whatever you need. Objectives. We either wing it to get by, fake it till you make it. Or we strive to be better than everyone else. Setting. We either treat our place of work like a vocational treadmill. I'm not going anywhere in this job. This is a dead end. Or we treat it like our forever home. <laughs> like might as well put a bed in here because I'm here day and night. Companions. Our coworkers are either a necessary evil that we have to endure working with, or there are competitors going after the same promotions as us or the same attention of the boss as us. Conflict. We either avoid it or we stir it up so that we can win at something. Authority. We either fear those who are in authority over us or we resent them. Maybe think we can do a better job than them. 
And then ambition. We either resist it or use people as rungs upon which we step one after another on our way up the corporate ladder. Any one of us can feel any one of these and the tension therein and know that we evidence how our jobs can be dirty. They can be messy. Our skewed, diverse perspectives on these items make any job a dirty job. Why is that the automatic work-life situation in 2021? Why is that where we find ourselves? The one-word answer for that that the Bible would tell us is it's rebellion. It's rebellion. Adam and Eve bypassed God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since a kingdom cannot flourish when rebellion is tolerated, God sends the rebels out of the garden. And so that's where we're going to pick up tonight, is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. What happens after man and woman rebel against their creator, do what he told them not to do? Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. God's word says this. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. At this time, I'd like for us to bow our heads. And ask that the Lord would teach to you specifically what he has for you to learn tonight. Would you just offer up a prayer, uh, just asking him to teach you tonight? Lord, would you teach us how we as fallen people are to work jobs in a way that would glorify you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. From this narrative in Genesis 3, we see work becomes problematic instead of merely creative. Weeds, challenges, dramatic co-workers, wrong attitudes, lack of productivity, impure motives, ungodly ambitions. This is what work has become. You'll work hard until you die. 
That is what this passage is telling us. Instead of ruling creation, it will overpower you and swallow you up. And those who refuse to know their limits find that the thorns and thistles are never eliminated. They just require more time. And this gives way for what we have called and labeled workaholism and burnout. And this has been man's experience throughout all of history. In fact, King Solomon picks up on this and is credited with writing the book of Ecclesiastes, where we were reminded in our scripture reading of the troubling reality of our current state of work. Ecclesiastes 2, 22 through 23 says, What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The truth we find in Genesis 3 that impacts our topic of work tonight is that when man fell, so did his work. When man fell, so did his work. Where there was abundance, there are now thorns and thistles. Where there was pleasure, there is now toil and weariness. Where there was worship, there is now fear and loathing. Where there was ease, there is now stress and anxiety. Is that not what you feel? In your current state of work, maybe not on your good days or your best days, but on your every day, to some extent. Works, curse, brings with it a number of things that I think we can spot in this passage. And so I'd like to just kind of give some of those to you. This is not a comprehensive list, but these are some things I think worthy of note. Works, curse, brings with it limitations in abilities and outcomes. Limitations in abilities and outcomes. With our abilities, our God-given abilities, as we saw in review of last week, we experience pain, fatigue, sweat. We, we saw this in the passage when it says, cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it. Right? And then later, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread that in our abilities, we feel exhausted. What about our outcomes? With our outcomes, we experience less than is to be expected. Disappointment. Sometimes loss. And then uncertainty. That this is an, this is an agricultural uh, image here with plants. And we know that... Now, it, plants are dependent upon climate. 
and weather, and you're not sure what the field is going to yield in its proper season, that there's an uncertainty involved there. Work's curse brings with it limitations and abilities and outcomes. It also brings with it broken challenges and solutions. Broken challenges and solutions. With our challenges, we have to deal with sin in most work situations. That anytime conflict arises, there's any kind of confusion or miscommunications, most of the time at the core of that is sin. Now, it might not be blatant sin or intentional sin, but all it takes is someone being selfish and not being a team player to cause up some type of strife in the workplace. But not just our challenges, our solutions as well. When our solutions to those challenges are in those, we're tempted to sin as a response of taking shortcuts, of, of going around people we don't want to deal with. That these responses, these seemingly solutions to our challenges are even sinful. Broken challenges and solutions. And then finally, Withdrawal of God's blessing. Withdrawal of God's blessing. We do not have God's blanket endorsement on our work anymore. That at one point in time, God walked with Adam in the garden as he worked. But as if we were to skip down to verse 24, we see that God, um, uh, God moves Adam out of the Garden of Eden. His intimacy is not automatically known in our work life. And that's a shame. Because as we saw last week, we are, we are, our purpose is to work and to keep. And to do so with God's active involvement. We desire that intimacy, but it's no longer guaranteed to us as we work and as we keep. So this is what work's curse brings with it. So we feel the weight of Genesis 3 tonight, don't we? We've all experienced the reality of the picture that Ecclesiastes 2 paints. And we can all resonate with the lyrics from Blink-182 when they say, Late night, come home. Work sucks, I know. So what are we to do? Do we just sit here and cry? Do we just sulk, work, and die? No. Like a toddler with a dirty diaper, something needs to change. So I want to give you five ways that you can clean up your dirty job. Five ways you can clean up your dirty job, that you can sanctify your cursed work. Five ways to clean up your dirty job. Number one. Believe what God has said about who you are and what you do. Believe what God has said about who you are and what you do. Last week, just remember last week, when we, we looked at the garden, when things were good and God said they were good. We learned in Genesis 2 about God's perspective of work and how work is and still can be good. That in his sovereignty, God created you 
in his image. He knows exactly who you are because he made you. He was intricately involved in your creation. He designed you just the way that you are. Not only that, that he placed you right where you are. That he placed you in the Memphis Shelby County area in the year 2021. And he knows what he's doing with you and your workplace. And then he's purposed us to work and to keep And we realized our work is sacred because it is an act of worship to God. We saw how there were consequences for adopting this biblical perspective, isn't there? That we no longer work for a paycheck or for a vacation. And we don't pursue work that goes against our nature or against the character of God. Instead, we work really hard to obtain and maintain good quality work that pleases the Lord. And after hearing last week, did anything change in your work life? Did you decide to hold yourself to a higher standard? To display the excellencies of Jesus Christ in the workplace? actually believing what the Bible says about who you are and what you are to do to work and to keep is the first and foremost way to clean up your dirty job. We've got to start there. It's not enough to hear these things and hear that there is a biblical perspective of work, but you've got to believe it and believe it for yourself. It's one thing to recognize that there's a stop sign that says stop. It's another thing to actually stop. That's the belief we're talking about. But this is not the only way. Second, eliminate feelings of entitlement. Eliminate feelings of entitlement. What do I mean by entitlement? That I am owed certain treatment that I am owed certain treatment, whether that's accolades, money, achievement, advancement, promotion, recognition, and on and on and on. You could be bearing a sense of entitlement against man or God. Perhaps you think the organization has not propped you up as its best worker. Or maybe you think God should bestow his favor upon you for how Christian you are behaving in front of others. Neither man nor God is a slave to you. To spin your coworkers' attention away from their work and towards celebrating you is all out pride. To what end do you want credit for the idea that you pitch in a meeting? Is it not enough that the organization is acting on it? Must everyone know that the idea originated with you? Must everyone know that you made the big sale? That you executed the plan to perfection? Is there room for God in your cubicle? 
Is there room for God in the work site? Is there room for God on the message thread with you and your coworkers? Or is it filled with your own self-glory? Neither man nor God is slave to you. To expect anything from God solely because of your actions is all out delusion. God needs nothing from you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the psalmist says. What could you give to God that he should repay you? What counsel could you give to God that he should repay you, that he should owe you anything? In God's economy, if you could work to achieve anything, it would eliminate God's grace. Our God is good to give out an abundance of who he is, that that's our God and he is good. We cannot earn his grace because then it would cease to be grace. Dave Harvey says, some of our worst moments are how we respond when people don't give us what we think we deserve. So think about that in terms of your work week. Think about the last week that you've worked and think to some of your worst moments. What was that moment that you slipped up, that you did something wrong? Not just a mistake, you did something wrong. Some of our worst moments are how we respond when people don't give us what we think we deserve. Now to help balance this, we have Psalm 62 verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope and expectation is from him. Now notice what that Psalm didn't say. For God alone, O my soul, I will work in diligence. No, I will wait in silence because my hope and my expectation is from him. And then when Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, he taught them the balance between waiting and working because we do have to work. We can't just wait. We have to do both. So what's the balance like, Paul? Well, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. We have to eliminate feelings of entitlement. We've got to trust the Lord, wait on him and work as Paul would have us. Third, seek first the kingdom of God. And you know where we get this. Get it from the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God. You remember 
from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Many, many of you will remember that this command comes at the end of the passage that Jesus teaches on dealing with anxiety. Jesus commands his anxious disciples to redirect their attention towards his kingdom as a concentrated effort to curb worry. If you make this your focal point, the focal point of your life, your anxieties will diminish over time as God cares for you and your every need. How is the kingdom of God affected by my work today? How is the kingdom of God affected by your work today? The passage before the one on anxiety is all about the kingdom perspective on stuff. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Many of us are so concerned with building up our own kingdom our own bank account, our own platform, our own follower count, our own clientele, that we don't just lose sight of the kingdom of God. We don't even give it a second thought. Seek first the kingdom of God. That will help clean up your dirty job. Fourth, immerse your energy in the task at hand. Immerse your energy in the task at hand. At one time or another, we've all probably desired to do something great, um, perhaps great for the Lord even. Ingrained in our generation, though, is this passion to do large, famous things quickly. We want to do something big, something influential, something sizable, maybe even immeasurable. We want it to be noticed by everyone. So it is an undeniable thing that we did. And you're the one to thank for it. And it couldn't happen without you. We want it to happen fast because we hate waiting. Life moves fast. There's no time to slow down. We need to pump out our projects left and right just so we stay relevant. Do you have a passion to do large, famous things quickly? If so, you're going to need to crucify that. And that's something that's ingrained in a lot of us because it's a generational thing. And just to let you know, I'm still a work in progress. I had to crucify this before I really aspired to be a pastor. That it was in room 349 at Carver Hall on the Southern Seminary campus in Louisville, Kentucky, where I met with God. 
and I wanted to be the next, you name it. Like, uh, it's something I still have to be sanctified through because I'm somebody that gets a platform. But as big a platform as I may have wanted at one time, I don't want it anymore. That it was in that room, on that campus, that I crucified this idea of doing large, famous things quickly. And my plea with the Lord was, Lord, make me an ordinary pastor so that only you get the glory for it. And I've seen him bring me through that. He's been faithful through that. Do you have a passion to do large, famous things quickly? Because you're going to have to crucify that if you want to clean up your dirty job. And I'd love to invite you into something better, something else the Lord has for you to do. Psalm 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Faithfulness is different from worldly success. Because worldly success is all about doing large, famous things quickly and appearing like you have it all together. And none of us do. But faithfulness, it says, do small things. Do unnoticed things. And do them slowly. (laughs) Resist the urge to uproot your life in a moment's notice. Because lasting fruit comes when you are deeply rooted where you are. You bloom where you're planted, as it says. Uh, There's a famous missionary by the name of Jim Elliott who uh, died on the mission field by sharing the gospel with an unreached people group. And one of his most famous sayings (laughs) is, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. Most practically, that means putting your phone down, putting your phone away, giving quality time to the person in front of you, investing in them, even when people don't notice it, even when it's one-on-one and it's slow life transformation taking place as you just talk about what God has to say about them, who they are as a person made in the image of God for the purposes that he has designed for them. Wherever you are, be all there. And someone once said, the problem with many of us is not that we lack self-confidence, but that we have far too much self-importance. So we distract ourselves with dreams of different, different people, different places, different opportunity. What's out there for me? And it gets to the point where we're so distracted with all these different things that we never choose any one of them. At the end of the day, we're stuck with whatever we got. Psalm 131 Verse 1 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Do you see the humility in that psalm? I'm not going to 
worry myself with delusions of grandeur. I'm going to focus on the task at hand. I don't want to do large, famous things quickly. I, I want to focus so deeply on the task in front of me that when another opportunity comes my way, I look at it like an unwelcome distraction. That is laser focus on the task at hand. Live and work in that. Pace yourself. Move slowly. And don't stop. Keep going. And then finally, number five, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. That Psalm 131 goes on to say in verses two and three, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Whatever it is that shakes your faith is your true God. Whatever it is that shakes your faith is your true God. That's exercising power and authority over you and your future. Whatever shakes your faith is your true God. Is it the triune God of the Bible though? God knows every challenge that you will face today and he is perplexed by none of them. When God allows you a challenge, he is promising you more of himself. It's a mercy of God. We pay strength trainers to test us, to push us, to even hurt us in some cases, so that we'll become stronger and healthier. And yet, we want godliness to come without work and challenge. When we hope in the Lord, we do a number of things that are for our benefit. When we hope in the Lord, we place our trust in the only one who will not disappoint. When we hope in the Lord, we refuse inner tempta temptations to speculate, manipulate, and throw tantrums. When we hope in the Lord, we serve ourselves a heaping plate of contentment, of joy, and of satisfaction. When we hope in the Lord, we reflect the character of Jesus. When we hope in the Lord, we see any limitations with our work as a new area in which we can trust God to do what only He can do. And when we hope in the Lord, we see limitations exist to remind us that we are not God, which is where prayer comes in. That it's not God that needs us. We need God. And he's delighted to give us himself. And so we ask for his help when our jobs are dirty and they need to be sanctified and we need help, we hope in the Lord by way of prayer.
if God doesn't give you what you want, He is giving you something better for His glory and for your good. Maybe some of you last week in that part of whether you should stay or whether you should go and and you got really excited and you really wanted to look for that new job and you were hit with the reality of, okay, that actually requires some work of me. Like an effort. I actually got to go look and apply and interview. And so now you kind of feel a sense of stuckness. But you don't want to do any of that. You certainly don't want to keep going to the job that you're at now. This sermon is for you. How do you take this dirty job and ask the Lord to clean it up, to sanctify it, so that you can see the goodness of work? Sometimes he's not going to give you what you want so that you have to work through it by faith for his glory and for your good. Do you have a dirty job? Do you have cursed work? Or do you have a wonderful platform from which you can reflect God's character and his message to others? The message of the gospel. God's power to save sinners. Are you living proof of that message in the workplace? You can be. By God's grace, you can be no matter what your job is. We don't always have a choice in our hardship, but we do have a choice in how we respond. So let's do what the Lord Jesus taught us from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's be who he says we are as his representatives, as disciples of Jesus Christ, he says in Matthew 5. Verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give Glory to your Father in heaven. If you have a dirty job, these are how these are ways that you can clean it up. If you have cursed work, this is how it is sanctified. Show others that you are the light of the world, just as Jesus says you are. That's the goal that you would glorify your Father in heaven.